0: Hebrews chapter six is our text again this morning. We will be looking at verses nine and ten. Hebrews six verses nine and ten. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed. In his blood. That's the first verse of an old hymn written by Fanny Crosby in 1873. The tune or the music, if you know it, is not hers. It was written by a colleague or friend of hers, but the words are hers. And it was taken from Paul's words or based on Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, where Paul famously said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that's confidence, isn't it? If you've got the confidence to really say that it is a gain for me to die, that is an assurance of your salvation. Assurance, which is what we are talking about this morning, is defined in our context as a confidence of final salvation. And that's what Miss Fanny Crosby's song was about. Now, there are some who readily say that there is no such thing. No one can have complete confidence that they are saved, not only now, but forever. Not until we actually stand before God and hear his verdict on our lives. And if that is true, that is, if there is no assurance, then I might as well stop my sermon now. Which, of course, would please some of you but it would give none of you the assurance that you want and the assurance that we so often lack. We, of course, live in a society and at a time when everything is changing, and often those changes are very rapid. And such rapid change might make us conclude that there is no way to be assured of anything in the future. No one knows what tomorrow will bring, There are only two sure things in life, and that is death and taxes. Beyond that, we can be sure of nothing. And if we do not know what is going to happen tomorrow, if we don't know what our Thanksgiving dinner is going to turn out like with our family and friends, then how in the world can we be so certain of anything so far off in the future as pertains to our ultimate salvation? Such thinking is why so many people answer the question about their future with phrases like this. When asked by someone about their salvation and about their eternal destiny, so very many people will say something like, Well, I hope so. Are you going to heaven when you die? Well, I, I hope so. Or I'm doing my best. And there is certainly no assurance in those kinds of phrases. And yet they remain the majority answer leaving most to believe that this is something we just cannot know, at least not now. I told you, I think, a couple of weeks ago about an article I was reading. I don't remember the article now. I don't remember even what it was about, but I remember that there was a comment made by someone in the article about someone who had passed away and the assurance that they had that this person now was in heaven. And that doesn't strike us as odd, but certainly in an article there were comments below. There always are these days. And in multiple comments on this article, there was contradiction. There was even outrage. There was anger on behalf of some people that anybody would have the nerve to say something like they knew that their loved one was in heaven. Because after all, the commenter concluded, that is something we simply cannot know. And yet John, in his first epistle, said it very clearly. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Once again, John shows himself to be an author that is very clear in what he's having to say. He's saying, I'm writing this letter in large measure to those who believe in Christ so that they might know that they have eternal life. He doesn't say hope. He doesn't even say pray. He says that you might know that you have eternal life, or as Adrian Rogers used to say, a know-so salvation rather than a hope-so salvation. And So this morning we are concluding our brief series on the four aspects of salvation, four different words By looking today at what I am going to suggest is our most favorite of the four, the word assurance. We began with preservation, that is God keeps those who are his. Now we like that word too, even if we're a little confused about it. The second word was the word perseverance. We didn't like that one nearly as much because perseverance sounds like work. It sounds like effort that we have to put forth, and indeed it is, though, of course, it is not work, salvation. Preservation, perseverance, and then the third word we looked at was the word apostasy, and and frankly, that word scares us. The idea that it is possible for a professing believer To abandon his or her professed faith. And I'm emphasizing the word professed because we made the distinction that a genuine believer could not really apostatize, but a professed believer certainly could, thereby proving that they were not genuine. They went out from us because they were not of us. Again, John said it very clearly. And then today we come to our fourth word the word assurance. This is what we want. And yet, this is what we struggle with. Again, we must acknowledge the seeming contradictions that are found here. If God preserves us, and then we must persevere, how can we ever have assurance? If we must continue on, as Jesus said, we must endure to the end, how can there be any assurance in the present if we must wait to see whether or not we are going to endure? Or again, as we talked about last week, if there is the possibility of apostasy, then can there really be assurance? And we've said all along that while these four words intermingle with one another, we cannot take one without the others. We also understand that though we cannot wrap our heads around how they all come together, the Bible teaches all four, and therefore we believe all four. So today from these two verses, and again, keep your Bibles open because we will go elsewhere. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, as we seek to find assurance. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, obviously, we have already looked at verse 9. In fact, we've looked at that a couple of times. And we've acknowledged throughout that these topics come together as they do here in verse 9. So on the heels of the apostasy section, that is verses 4 through 8, are the warning passage. There's five of them in Hebrews, and this is the harshest of them. But then, after the warning passage in verse 4 through 8, he comes to verse 9, and he changes the audience, and he says, but now concerning you, that is in all likelihood he's writing to a group of people, and there is within that group a minority who are in grave danger of apostatizing, and therefore he is warning them. On the other hand, there is a majority who are, in fact, genuine believers. And now he turns his attention to them having confidence in their salvation. And so he begins by calling them beloved. And that is a term of endearment, addressing to fellow believers. I attended part of the Tennessee Baptist Convention this past week. Did not attend nearly all that I normally do because of a funeral, but because it was in town, I was still able to attend some of it. And one of the common phrases a pastor hears at the Tennessee Baptist Convention or even the Southern Baptist Convention is something like this: "How you doing, brother? Good to see you, brother." We use that word for a number of reasons. Number one, we use it because it's tradition. Sometimes in churches we just call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. But sometimes we use the word because we don't know someone's name. We don't remember who they are. Uh, Even as I just did a few moments ago. And so we try to cover that up. We don't want people to know that and so we don't use names, we just use these terms. But the writer of Hebrews is not doing that when he says beloved. He is using this term as a term of endearment, as a term of confidence that he knows that they are, in fact, genuine believers. He is assured of that, and therefore he says, I'm speaking to you of of better things. And so the big question for us today is how can we have this same kind of assurance? We've already acknowledged the possibility of it from John's epistle, Even if, practically speaking, the majority of people in our world have a different opinion and they say nobody can know for sure, the Bible tells us we can know for sure, and therefore the question becomes, how? How can we practically have this kind of assurance? Of course, we have to acknowledge the other side of the equation that is just as problematic, if not more so, And that is though there are those who are adamant about the assurance of their salvation when they ought not to be. There are people who will say, oh yes, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God saved me and I'm going to heaven when I die. In spite of the fact that there is very little, if any, evidence in their lives There are very few, if any, of the marks of genuine discipleship that we find throughout the New Testament evident in the way they are living their lives. They have assurance, but it is not biblical assurance. And therefore, we have to acknowledge that if indeed there is the possibility of a false profession of faith, something we've acknowledged throughout this series, if there is the possibility of a false profession of faith, we also must acknowledge that there is the possibility of a false assurance of faith. And so there are two sides to the same coin, which makes this conversation all the more difficult because of the misconceptions floating around both sides. So what I want to do today is examine three foundations that come together to give us assurance of our salvation. And in doing so, I want you to understand that all three need to be present for genuine assurance. This is not majority rules. This is not best two out of three. These are three foundations that all must be present if we are going to have the assurance of our salvation that we find this writer of Hebrews has for those to whom he is writing. The first is the promises of God. This is where we are reminded of our first sermon in this series on preservation, that God keeps those who belong to him. And in some sense, assurance boils down to this very simple truth, that God has said it, and therefore we are to believe the promises of God. We've seen that the terminology we use to speak of new life in Christ certainly speaks of the forever nature of it. Eternal life, by definition, lasts forever. We've heard Jesus himself say that we are in the hand of God And that no one nor nothing is strong enough to take us out of God's hands. We've looked at that passage of scripture where Paul is extremely confident of this unbroken chain of salvation. So much so that those whom God justified, another word for saved, he is also going to glorify. That is, there is is no fall off. The category of people that God justifies is the same category of people that God is going to glorify. And all of these promises for our future should give us assurance in the present. So the question becomes, are we going to believe these promises, especially in those times when we feel like we do not deserve salvation? And there is going to be those times because, frankly, we do not deserve salvation. So are we going to have the assurance and the trust in God's promises even when we don't feel like it? Are we going to believe in the promises of God even when the enemy speaks a different message to our minds? And again, we've, always, we've all had those kind of experiences as well, that little voice in our head that says something like, do you really think God would save someone like you? Do you really think God would keep someone like you? Do you really think you still have your salvation after what you thought or did last night? Are we going to believe that voice? Or are we going to believe the promises of God that we find in his word? We see the promises of God in this text in verse 10. God is not unjust meaning that God is a God who keeps his promises. We talked about this in our life group. We were looking through that book that dealt with the communicable attributes of God, that is those attributes of God that in some sense are also to be found in us. And two of those were that God is true, that is he can be trusted, he's not going to lie, and that God is faithful, meaning that God is going to keep his promises. And so the writer here says that God is not unjust, He sees the works that you do in his name. He sees the way you love others in his name. Now, again, I need to throw in here, as I so often do, because there is such a prevalence of false doctrine, and this false doctrine is destructive, I do need to throw in here that this does not mean that God sees how much you do. And because he sees how much you do, he decides to save you. That is works salvation. But God does see what you do in His name because He has saved you, all of which demonstrates your genuine faith. And then we see the perseverance aspect in the last phrase, verse 10 they not only have demonstrated these in the past, but they continue to do so in the present. Therefore, they can trust the promises of God that He will complete their salvation. Which is why the author says that he is sure of better things concerning them, things pertaining to salvation. Not the judgment that he mentioned in verse 8 that those who apostatize are going to find, but a different outcome for these folks because of their salvation. So the first foundation of assurance is very similar to so many other aspects of the Christian life. We trust in the promises of God. So if you would today confess that you are confident that God has saved you in the past, not because of what you've done, but because you understand that salvation is by grace through faith, if you are confident in that and trust in the promises of God that he has saved you, why then do we struggle to believe that that same God who has saved us in the past has also promised to keep us in the present and in the future? The answer is in part because we often believe subconsciously that while salvation is by grace through faith, we must somehow keep it by our works. And We'll talk more about that when we get to our third point this morning. So for now, it's as simple as taking God at his word. Those whom he saved, he has promised to keep. And that ought to be enough, although in our day of easy believism and cheap grace, we need to go beyond that. And the fact of the matter is scripture goes beyond that. And so we need to do that as well. There are three foundations that are necessary, not just one. Foundation number one is the promises of God. Foundation number two is the person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible repeatedly says, that those who are genuinely saved have the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Now here again, we have some friends in other denominations. We saw this last week with the idea of apostasy or losing salvation. Likewise, this week, we have friends in other denominations who believe differently on this than we do. Our charismatic friends teach in large measure that it is possible for someone to be saved and not have the Spirit of God. They get that later. They call it a second blessing. The first blessing is salvation itself. But later, if you pursue it and ask for it, you might get a second blessing, which is the person of the Holy Spirit. But we don't believe that. We believe that every genuine believer is given the Spirit of God in dwelling within them the moment they are saved. There are not two classes of Christians, those who have the Spirit and those who do not. And so let's turn our attention to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. This is Paul writing, of course. And he says, so then, brothers. Again, he's writing to Christians. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now for our purposes this moment, this morning, verse 16 is the key verse. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, as I mentioned, verse 16 for our discussion is the key verse. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Frankly, I had only intended to read verse 16. I thought that was sufficient. The problem is there are some who say that the Holy Spirit of God testifies with their spirit that they are indeed children of God. And while that is true and certainly found in this verse, it is so subjective that there are some who claim that with, once again, no real evidence in their life. And so they say, yes, I, I know I'm saved and I have assurance of that because there is this inner voice that has told me I'm okay. And that inner voice, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 16, must be the Holy Spirit. So whatever else you see about my life, know that I am confident in my salvation. Well, is that what Paul means here? Is he talking here about an inner voice that has somehow whispered to you, don't worry about what anybody else says, I'm telling you, you're okay. Well, not if you look at the whole context here, which is why I read verses 12 through 17. In verse 13, there is a contrast. Those who live according to the flesh, that is, those who live in a worldly manner, they are going to die. They are not genuine believers. Those who live by the Spirit, those are the ones who are going to live. In fact, he says, it is only those who are led by the Spirit of God who are truly the sons of God. It is not just those who say, the Spirit told me I'm okay, therefore I'm okay. Paul says, no, it is those who are led by the Spirit of God. And then we'll go into more detail on that in point three. But for now, we are reminded that we who are true believers have the Spirit of God within us because we've been adopted as sons. We are part of the family and therefore we always will be. We're gonna gather with family this week for Thanksgiving. There are going to be some people in all likelihood in every family who you wish didn't show up this week. But they're gonna be there, why? Because they're family. We may not like it, but they are part of the family and therefore they are invited. God does not adopt us into his family only to abandon us later. In this way, the spirit within us testifies that we do belong to God both now and forever. Now again, I do acknowledge that there is much confusion surrounding the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. There is often more confusion with the Spirit of God than there is confidence. We've seen and maybe even heard of the excesses of the na- in, in the name of God's Spirit, and therefore we are often hesitant to find confidence in the work of the Spirit in our lives. God the Father, we know, God the Father loves us. God the Son, we know, he has died in our place, rose again on the third day, paying the price for our sins and thereby redeeming us. But God the Spirit, well, we're not so sure about him. And while this is not a sermon on the overall work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, which I have done in the past, I do need to mention some of His work as it pertains to our topic of the assurance of our salvation. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 22 says that God has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God has put His seal, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. You can turn there if you would like. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says something very similar. Again, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus this time. In him, that is in Christ, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. That is when you were saved, you were sealed with with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So there are two key words in both of these sections of scriptures, the word seal and the word guarantee. A seal was used in New Testament times and in some measure in our times for multiple things. Number one, it marked ownership meaning that the seal was an official seal that marked either property or even a person as belonging to that individual. I have a seal in my office. It's not really official, but I have a seal. We might call it more like a stamp that I put on the inside of all of the books that belong to me. It says something like, this is from the library of Alan Price. That way when you borrow a book from me and two years from now you see it on your coffee table or your bookshelf and you say to yourself, I'm not sure who that book belongs to, you look in the front and there you see you know who this book belongs to. It belongs to me and therefore you ought to give it back. That's a seal, a stamp of ownership. And God has stamped us with the seal of the Holy Spirit saying that we belong to Him. We are no longer our own. We are bought with a price and therefore we belong to God. Secondly, the seal is a mark of authenticity. Stating that this individual, you, are the real deal. The Holy Spirit within us is a mark that we truly belong to the King. We are surely... And truly his. And then thirdly, it is a mark of protection. Meaning that the owner, that is in this case God, is going to protect us. He is going to use all of his resources to protect us. Because we belong to him. And as we've seen previously, God owns it all. All resources are available to him. They are unlimited. So that no one nor nothing can separate us from him. So that seal marks you as authentic and owned, and therefore God is going to protect his ownership in you. But then there is that second word, the word guarantee. That's often a word we hear in business. Someone will say to us when we are trying to purchase something, I guarantee it. And what they are saying by that is this, that they and the company that stands behind them are guaranteeing their product. It is going to do what, it, what they say it's going to do. It is going to last as long as they say it's going to last or they will back it up and give you something new. They guarantee it. But we still don't believe it, do we? Because we know we've been burned before. And so just because some salesman who is working on commission says, I guarantee it, doesn't necessarily mean we believe it. But God is the one guaranteeing here god is the one who is saying i've given you the holy spirit as a guarantee of what is to come we have an inheritance we don't have it yet that's why it's called an inheritance but until we get it we have the holy spirit which is a promise from god a guarantee from god that we are going to get what he has told us we are going to get it is a certainty so even if we do not possess it currently we have the promised Holy Spirit testifying of what lies ahead. Now what could be better than a guarantee from God that our salvation is sure? Tracy and I were flipping through the channels some weeks ago and we happened upon the movie The Blues Brothers. You remember that movie? I said to Tracy, we have got to watch this. This is a classic. She had never seen it. After about 30 minutes, she turned to me and she said, why is this a classic again? But regardless, it is. And if you know the story, the Blues Brothers are on a mission. And one of the recurring themes in one of the recurring statements in the movie is, we're on a mission from God. The mission is that they are trying to raise $5,000 to pay the back taxes on the orphanage in which they grew up. So that it would not have to close the doors and so they repeatedly say we're on a mission from God meaning that they are confident this mission is going to be successful because it's not their mission it's a mission from God well now that I have redirected your thoughts to a movie that perhaps you really like or maybe I've totally confused you because you have no idea who Jake and Elwood are What I'm trying to say to you this morning is, this is a guarantee from God. This is not me standing up here saying this. This is God himself saying, I have sealed you with the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, this guarantee is going to be fulfilled. If you need one more proof and you still have your Bibles open in Ephesians, just turn over a page or two to chapter 4 and verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, meaning that we can can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can do some things that we ought not to do and therefore trouble the Holy Spirit. But that's not why I read it, the second half. By whom you were sealed. We've already seen that, so I'm not reading it for that purpose either. But look at the last phrase. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now again, that word redemption is a word that we often use synonymously with salvation or conversion. And because of that, when we think of redemption, we think of the past. God has redeemed me in the past. He has bought me back by paying the price for my sin. And therefore, that redemption has been accomplished in the past. But that's not the way Paul is using the word in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13. He's using it in terms of future redemption. That is the promise of final salvation. And God has sealed us until that day when our salvation is complete in Christ. So what a tremendous combination. A one-two punch, if you will. The promise of God and the person of the Holy Spirit. And yet we're not done yet. I said there were three foundations to genuine assurance. The third foundation is the produce of our lives. And I have left this to the third intentionally to remind us that this is contingent upon the first two. This is not doing good deeds for the sake of doing good deeds. There are many people who do good things out of the kindness of their hearts. They're just good people, and therefore they want to help others. And they do things to help others, especially during this time of year, having no connection to Christ whatsoever. They're not doing it in any way for Christ. And then there are others like us who come up here on a Saturday morning after many of you have bagged up bags of groceries and purchased turkeys and other things. And hand out 100 plus bags of blessings to people in our community who would not have a meal for Thanksgiving if you did not do that. And you do that out of your love for Christ and therefore your love for others. Likewise, there are many of you who have taken the time and spent the money to do one of these boxes. And you know that these boxes are going to go all over the world, as we've already heard, and be given to a child somewhere where you probably won't even know. And yet that, that child is going to have a smile and a blessing for Christmas because of your generosity. You do that out of your love for Christ. That is an expression of your faith in Christ. So what we're talking about this morning when we talk about the produce of our lives is the outflow of everything else we've already talked about, the Holy Spirit of God producing fruit in our lives in the form of good deeds, because that is who we are. We've talked about fruit several times in this series as evidence of genuine salvation. We've heard Jesus say, you will know them by their fruit. But this morning I'm saying, even this is not our own effort. Yes, we have to do something. I get that. But ultimately, this is the result of abiding in Christ. John chapter 17, abide in me. That is, remain connected to me. And if you remain connected to me, the person of the Holy Spirit indwells you and you will produce fruit. The opposite, if you are not connected to Christ, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, I'm not saying get involved in doing something in order to earn or prove your salvation. I'm saying that those who are truly saved and have the Spirit indwelling them will produce fruit because that's what the Spirit does. And here is where our lack of understanding or a misunderstanding about the nature of genuine salvation is often the cause for our lack of assurance if you are still clinging in full or at least in part to the idea that you somehow have to earn your salvation or at least you have to keep it then you're never going to have assurance you see there is this common belief that yes i believe it is god who saves but somehow i've got to keep i've got to do enough i've got to avoid enough in order for god to be pleased And so in some measure, I've got to keep my salvation. If that's your understanding, then you're never going to have assurance. Because you never know tomorrow what sins you might commit or those you won't avoid. And so we've got to come to an understanding of salvation where we know that it is God who saves. It is God who keeps. And it is God who assures us through the produce of the Spirit in our lives that we are uh, genuinely belong to Him. So our understanding of the nature of genuine salvation plays a huge role in whether or not we have assurance. Now, we've looked at three foundations this morning. I'm not done yet, but we've looked at three foundations. And I've said that all three need to be present, not just one or two. We've seen the promises of God. We've seen the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling the child of God. And we've seen the produce of our lives that naturally comes about by dwelling in Christ and having him dwell within us. So every genuine believer ought to have assurance. Not every professing believer, there is a distinction again. I am not saying that every professing believer ought to have assurance. There are some professing believers that ought not to have assurance. But every genuine believer ought to have the assurance of their salvation. And you say, why is this so important? Why does this matter so much? I mean, frankly, we're used to uncertainty in life and we're used to the anxiety that that uncertainty brings in other areas of our lives. So why shouldn't we have a bit of anxiety in our spiritual lives as well? Well, I want to conclude with a few statements that show us why this is so important, not just to have salvation, but to have assurance of salvation. Number one, God wants us to have peace rather than anxiety. The Bible repeatedly talks about peace. And Jesus himself said that he gives us peace, a peace that passes all understanding. And we will talk some about that as we transition into the Christmas season beginning next week. We'll talk about the peace that we can have because of our relationship with Christ. I realize there are multiple aspects of peace. We could talk about peace with God. Rather than being enemies of God as we formerly were, we are now at peace with God. Or we could talk about peace with one another. Which is why the Bible says that now as far as it is possible with you, live at peace with one another. That's the ideal. It's not always the, the reality. Or we could talk about having peace within ourselves, learning to live at peace with us. But we're talking primarily today, when I say peace rather than anxiety, we're talking about having peace with God. Secondly, not only peace rather than anxiety, but confidence rather than fear. As believers, we are not meant to live our lives in fear of what God might do to us in the future. We are to rest in the fact that he has already settled that. Now, that does not mean that we shouldn't have awe and respect. I'm talking about fear in the normal sense in which we use the word where we are afraid of God. We ought not to fear what God's going to do in the future because, again, Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That has all been settled. The debt has been paid. The wrath has been poured out, as we saw in Mark's gospel. Therefore, we can have confidence, which is why the Bible says we can come boldly into the presence of God because we know Him to be a gracious God who saves us and accepts us. Thirdly, we can have strength rather than weakness. In other words, assurance of salvation encourages and strengthens us for the service that he has for us in the kingdom. We are released from doing things out of duty, hoping to earn our salvation or please God somehow. Rather, now we serve him in delight, willingly following him, willingly being obedient to him, and willingly serving him. Because we know him to be a loving and gracious God who who saves us and assures us of that salvation. And finally, we can have joy rather than sorrow. And here I do not mean joy in the sense that if if our circumstances were good this past week, then we're happy. And if they weren't, then we're not. I'm talking about joy that transcends circumstances, joy that is not dictated by what happens in our daily lives, which is why Paul could say, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, let me say it again, rejoice in the Lord. And maybe we've stumbled upon one of the major reasons why we so lack assurance in our salvation. Or should I say that one of the reasons why we lack joy in our salvation is because we don't have the assurance. And if we don't have assurance, then we're constantly wondering where we stand with God, and there's no joy. But if we have assurance, there can be joy rather than sorrow. Well, as we kick off this Thanksgiving week, I can say with all certainty that if you are truly a follower of Christ, you can have joy this week of Thanksgiving. And not only this week, but forever Because the God who saves us is the God who declares that our salvation is settled such that we can sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine.